attention again to the reading and preaching of God's Word. We continue our series in the book of Judges and we come to the beginning of the Samson narrative. Samson narrative is the longest in all the book of Judges and that should point us to its importance. And indeed it is an important aspect of the book of Judges. Samson becomes one of the most famous stories, I think, in all of Scripture. People understand it about Delilah and the hair. So this morning we're going to be looking at the first of four parts of the Samson story. This is um, the birth narrative of Samson. So we're going to be looking at Judges 13. Thankfully, it's only, oh, 20 or so verses. So we can just, we can read the whole thing right at the beginning. I don't have to ask five different people at five different places and uh, to do this. We're just going to jump into God's Word. Judges chapter 13. If you have a Bible from um, over there, that's great. Turn to that if you have it on your phone. Um, please turn your attention. I'll be reading out of the ESV. So here now the reading of God's Word, Judges 13. I'll be reading the entire chapter. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. I didn't ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? He said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life, and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name? See, it is wonderful. 
So Noah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward the heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die. For we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtael. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells this famous story of the prodigal son returning home to his father after squandering all of his inheritance in reckless ways. If you recall this story, when he comes home, a big party is thrown in his honor. And the father says, ah, perhaps now my son has come. He was dead and is alive again. This picture, this story that Jesus tells is definitely a beautiful picture of God's gracious love for his people. And to those who come home after squandering away their life, he will gladly welcome them. But I've often wondered this question about the story. What's the next morning like? You know, after all the solo cups were squandered all around the place, they had to be picked up. The toilets, they had to be cleaned. Errands had to be run. The pigs had to be fed. The grass had to be cut. And I always wonder, what is the younger son thinking in these moments? When the sweat on his brow starts dripping into his eyes, what is he thinking? Is this what I really came back for? I mean, this is a monotonous, kind of boring life. Do I want this? I wonder, is this life appealing to the younger son in the moment? And what if it wasn't? What if he's decided, you know what? I hate this. I want to go again. What would the father do if he came again to his feet? Would the father accept it? Would there be grace for the son if he had squandered his inheritance again? Would the grace of the father still be there? I've wondered that. I don't know if you've ever wondered that, but I think most of us have wondered how far does God's grace go towards his people? Is there a limit to God's grace for his people? I think most of us that I know in here, you would write on a piece of paper and would tell me to my face, there is no limit to God's grace for his people. There is no limit. But then if I were to watch your life, and I'd see how you live your life, and this is true of me too, I would say to you, you actually don't believe what you say. You actually think that there's a limit to God's love. But is this true? How does God's grace affect our day-to-day living? How, how, how does this do this? Is there a limit to God's love? If we think there's a limit to God's love, then we're going to be very privy to buttoning up. You better do what you're supposed to do, and you, and you better like it, and on and on it goes. You see, what this does is it creates a self-righteous Lifestyle, and it becomes where you boast in your goodness or boast in how you're better than the person next to you and all this stuff. This is, this is 
not good thinking. This is not aligned with the limitless grace for, for, that God has for his people. You know, we have our limits, but does God? You see, Judges 13 is the beginning, as I said, of the Samson narrative. And the Samson narrative is the last of the judges in the book of Judges. And if you, if you study the book of Judges, there's this spiraling out of Israel, where Israel gets worse and worse and worse and worse as the story unfolds. Since Samson is the last one, we are now entering in to the most depraved period in Israel's history. It's the darkest of days. And what we find in Judges 13 is that even amidst the greatest darkness in Israel's history, God's grace is still there. Amidst the darkness, the grace of God is there. You might know on paper that God's grace is limitless for his people. But I want to show you in very exact ways the limitless nature of God's grace towards his people through Judges 13. And it is my hope that in seeing the different you know, nuances of this limitless grace, that you would not only believe it in your mind, but it would come to your heart. And you begin to live in light of God's grace. So there's three areas we're going to look at today of God's grace and where it goes. The first that we're going to see in Judges 13 is that God's grace is for the ignorant. God's grace is for the ignorant. Look with me at 13 verse 1. It's the first verse. It's all I'm going to read. 13.1 says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. I think it's worth repeating again. The people of the Lord again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. If you study the book of Judges, or if you've been with us, or if you haven't been with us, this is the seventh time the author writes this phrase. Six times they had come home. Just like the older son, the, elder, the, the younger son in the, in the story Jesus tells. And here a seventh time. They sinned again. But there's something about this phrase and about what happened shortly after that should capture our attention. First, note that the author says that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This isn't evil in their eyes. This is evil in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord is looking down on them and like, oh gosh, they are sinning against me. And what this is telling us is that these people are ignorant of their actions. They're not privy to their sin. Only God sees that they're ignorant, or sees that they're sinning. And sin, this, this ignorant nature of sin can do this to us. You know, we can feel okay about what, where we are and what we're doing, and, and, and we don't even realize we might break the, the commands of God. For example, I, I see this with my children all the time. Our children are very careful not to utter a four-letter word. And even of like the D-A-N-G word, like they don't even want to say that. And yet parents, including me, will utter it and won't bat an eye. There's a sense in which sin can make us kind of, this it, ignorant nature. And this is exactly what Israel was like. They were ignorant of their sins. They did what was evil on the side of the Lord, but not inside of themselves. But I want to show you how this ignorance plays itself out even more. Because these people are the walking definition of ignorance. When the consequences of their sin come, 
And they're enslaved to the Philistines for 40 years. You would expect in the book of Judges for them to do this one thing. To cry out to God. The previous six times that Israel had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord, when they realized it, they always cried out. Ah, we have sinned against God. But what do we find in verse 2 of Judges 13? Do we find them crying out? <coughs> There's no crying out. The ignorance of their own disposition, their ignorance of their place in this moment was one that they didn't even know that there was a possibility for salvation. I think of this as somewhat of like Stockholm Syndrome, like you're just being abused and you're just fine with it. This is where the Israelites were. They were ignorant and they were doing what God didn't want them to do and they didn't even want God's help. This is a walking definition of ignorance. They were ignorant of their own darkness and they were ignorant of their own mistreatment. How ignorant the people of Israel in Judges 13 were. Yet. Yet. God doesn't give up on his ignorant people. Despite their ignorance of their own sin and their ignorance of their situation, God moves towards them. And he moves towards them in grace. It wasn't anything that they did that prompted God to move towards them. It was simply his covenant to them. You will be my people and I will rescue you. God in his grace moves towards these ignorant people who are in the midst of darkness. But that's a God of grace. Blood Diamond is a fantastic movie that exposes the darkness of the diamond trade industry in Africa. And one of the main characters in the movie is a man named Solomon Vandy. Solomon Vandy is an African villager who, who, who loves to, to, to plant fields and take care of his crops. And one day, Solomon's son, Dia, is kidnapped by a diamond miner who takes him into the bush so that he would become someone who mines for diamonds. To help Dia adjust to this new life, the miner gives Dia access to all sorts of drugs and alcohol to help him cope with the difficult working conditions. And Dia, in the midst of this, is brainwashed. Little does he know, though, that his father, Solomon, fights with all his might. And he goes through hell and high water to find him. And when he finally finds his son, Dia, Dia is holding a gun to his face. And he's completely ignorant of the fact that his father had gone through hell and high water to rescue him. Now, in his fatherly-like way, he was able to whisper to his son sweet words of what life used to be like. And Dia eventually dropped the gun and began to cry. I think this is a beautiful picture of what God is doing for Israel in Judges 13. They are completely ignorant of their position. They're willing to even hold a gun to God. We don't need you. We like the Philistines ruling us. But God in his grace literally goes through hell and high water to rescue his people. Friend, that's a God of grace. When people aren't even asking for God, he's going to them. Do you believe 
that your God is willing to, to pursue you, his people, even when you're ignorant? Or do you believe the lie that you better read your Bible so that God can come to you? Or, or, or you better start reading, you know, or, or praying and, and doing all these things. You have to do something for God, God's grace to come to you. What I must show you in this is that God's grace does not come because of what we do. God's grace comes because of his covenant faithfulness to his covenant that he made with his people. And he's going to be gracious even to an ignorant people, including you. Oh, that you would see that grace is amidst the darkness. Even the darkness of your own life when you were This is what Judges 13 showing us. That grace is for the ignorant. Not only though, does Judges 13 show us that there's grace for the ignorant. It shows us that there's grace for the insignificant. Judges 13 shows us that there is grace for the insignificant. Look with me at verse 2. God moves toward these people. And he moves towards this family of this area called Zorah. And it's a particular family of the tribe of the Danites. But there's this one particular person who is deeply insignificant that God moves towards. And who is that? It's Manoah's wife. Now, why do I say that Manoah, Manoah's wife was insignificant? I mean, I'm just going to walk you through kind of these things. First, she's never given a name. <coughs> You, you, you notice this? She's never given a name throughout the whole story. There's four chapters in the, in the book of Judges on Samson. And Samson's mother, who takes a prominent role, is never named. I, I didn't even pick up on this until I read it. His, her, uh, her husband called her woman. <laughs> like, this woman. Think about how insignificant she must have felt. So that's one. Secondly, when she comes to her husband, Manoah, with the news that the angel has come to her and says, you're going to have a child, what does the husband do? Nah, he didn't do that. Because what does Manoah do? He prays to God saying, hey, will you, I don't believe anything she's telling me. Will you show up so that I can hear from your own mouth that like, she's so insignificant even to her own husband. And then thirdly, of course, the most obvious part of this insignificance is that she's infertile. And you must understand that in biblical times, heck, even in times today, if a woman is infertile, there is a deep shame and, and a deep sense of insignificance. Put this in biblical times, and it's expounded even more. Because in biblical times, a woman's role was to give birth to children, mainly men, boys. And here she is. She doesn't have any children. I mean, you can recall stories like Abraham's wife, Sarah, Jacob's wife, Rachel. These women were desperate to have children. And they felt this deep insignificance because of their infertility. Here's a woman of deep insignificance in biblical times. She has no name. She's not trusted by her husband. She doesn't have kids. And what does God do? Despite her insignificance, God moves towards her. And promises her that she will have a child. But this isn't just any child, is it? This is a child that God says that she must take a Nazarite vow. You cannot drink of the vine, God says. And, and you can't cut his hair. It's a Nazarite vow. Like what's the purpose of the angel coming to Manoah's wife and saying, this is a vow I want you and your son to take. What's the purpose of it? The Nazarite vow is this. It comes from the book of Numbers. And it's God's law. 
And the purpose of the Nazarite vow was always for a period of time with an intended goal at the end. And the intended goal that the angel of God says to Manoah's wife is to begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. Here's what I want you to see in this gracious act of God. God shows grace to this insignificant woman by giving her significance and giving her a child. But this isn't any ordinary child. This is a child who will begin to bring deliverance to God's people. In the 1960s, there was a man named James Kennedy, a black man in Anderson, South Carolina. And he had a significant mental disability. One day he was walking by the football field of the local high school, and Coach James took, took to him. He saw him, and he began to take him under his wing. Everyone didn't like it. What's the purpose of this mentally handicapped individual? He's just getting in the way. But Coach James didn't see him as some insignificant character. He saw in James an opportunity to not only bless James, but to bless his team and to help his team see the need to care for those who need caring for of course, in the 1960s, a black man with a white coach, well, that was pretty significant. Do you know what? Coach James had such an impact on this James Kennedy that it would inspire not only the boys of Hannah High School, but it would inspire the movie called Radio. It was released within the last 20 years. Coach Jones was like God. And seeing someone who's deeply insignificant scoffed at by, by, the, by the world around him. And he saw great significance. And it became a great gift to him and to all those other people. God's grace is for the insignificant. Do you know that? I think many of us think that we have to do some great thing for God to feel like we matter in life. For God's grace and his blessings to flow, flow upon us. But what this story teaches us it has nothing to do with the things that we do to make us significant. God can take that which is insignificant and use it for significant purposes. And he's doing it all the time. God uses the insignificant and what a picture of his grace. See, God's grace goes to the insignificant. It goes to the ignorant. But lastly, it goes one last place. And it's a dark place. God's grace is for the arrogant. God's grace is for the arrogant. People understand, in our world, giving grace to the insignificant. We like the stories of radio. But one of the places where we don't like to see grace going is to the arrogant. The arrogant, the oppressors. But in this story, what we see is that the arrogant is actually the recipients of God's grace as well. In this particular case, the arrogant one that I'm referring to is Samson's father, Manoah. I mean, from the moment we meet him, he is as arrogant as they come. First, he doesn't believe his wife, because obviously he knows a woman is untrustworthy. So he prays to God, show up so that I can know what to do. And I find it so funny how God shows up again to his wife again. And she has to go and then come back and say, hey, husband, come on. He showed up again. Kind of the, the comical nature of it. But I think it's a humbling process. But secondly, God, God actually adheres to Manoah's prayer. What an arrogant prayer, right? But God still 
listens to the prayer of an arrogant man and shows up again. Lastly, after the message the angel gives to both Manoah and his wife, Manoah does something strange, doesn't he? He says to the angel, hey, stay, right, stay with us. Let us detain you. Weird. So he's trying to capture this special messenger so that he can control what this person does, as if he could control this angel. And so he says, hey, let's have a meal. And the angel said, I ain't going to eat if you detain me. But if you prepare a feast, present it as a burnt offering and offer it to the Lord. But look what he does right after, after this interaction. What does Manoah do? He responds by asking the angel his name. It's very strange. What is Manoah trying to do? Listen to what the scholar K. Lawson Younger says. In the ancient Near East, knowing the name of a heavenly being provided power over that being. What is Manoah trying to do? He's trying to control this angel. He's trying to dictate everything. He thinks he controls. What an arrogant twit. I'm telling you, Manoah does not come out good in this. He doesn't. But what happens when he does offer the burnt offering? The angel of the Lord goes up into the smoke with it. And what happens to Manoah? His knees are buckled. I have seen God. I'm going to die. We don't like moments of difficulty in our lives. We don't. We don't like to be fired. We don't like to be rejected by a boy or a girl. We don't like being told no. But here's the thing about these moments. They can be some of the most humbling and powerful moments of our life. Can they not? Think about the most impactful moments that have made you who you are. It could be a difficult parent. It could be a failing grade in a school. Whatever it might be, those moments have shaped you. They humbled you. And they awoke you to the reality that maybe you aren't in control. Those are powerful moments. And this is the type of moment that God gave to Manoah. And you know what, what I say? It's a moment of grace. Manoah was humbled because God is gracious. The arrogant are even humbled. <laughs> I'm guessing you don't like to think that God moves towards the arrogant. Friends, he does. He does it all the time because he's gracious to the arrogant. This story is an interesting story, is it not? Doesn't it remind you of another story in the Bible? It should. The story that I'm alluding to is another uh, miraculous conception. And the story I'm referring to, though, is Jesus. God went to Mary, or the angel went to Mary and promised her that she would have a child. But Jesus would do something different than, than Samson. You see, look at what Samson said. I, I think this is one of the most important texts of Judges 13 that I want you to see. The angel tells Manoah's wife this. He shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. He will begin. So miraculous birth will begin to bring deliverance from the Philistines. There's a sense in which God moving in in gracious ways to the ignorant, to the insignificant, to the arrogant. In this moment was going to be... A being complete. But when Jesus was born of Mary, 
And he entered into the darkness. To the ignorant. To the insignificant. To the arrogant. And he put himself on the cross. So he conquered more than just the Philistines. He conquered sin. He conquered death. And he conquered our greatest enemy, Satan. What I want you to see is that this picture needs to point us to Jesus and remind us that indeed grace is amidst the darkness. Do you believe that? Not just in your mind, but in your heart. That he is faithful to his people and will pursue them in grace all the days of their life. He will. Oh, that you would live now. Let me pray. Our God, we give thanks for this story. A story of your profound grace. Grace to people who are asking for it. Grace to people who certainly weren't even deserving. What a reminder it is to us of your grace. That you pursue your people in grace. That we are in this relationship, this covenant relationship with you by grace. And we are thankful for that. Oh, that we would live every day of our life in light of this grace. And we would live joyfully in light of that. Help us to remember that indeed you've conquered more than just the Philistines. That you've conquered our greatest enemy. Sin, death, and Satan. We give thanks to you, Jesus, for this.